Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This conversation covers Season 1, Episode 4, titled Who Goes There? From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow grows. After a second interrogation of Charlie Lane, Rust and Marty follow his tip to Tyrone Weems who tells them that Ledoux is cooking meth for the Iron Crusaders biker gang. Russ knows the gang and takes a personal leave to infiltrate them, telling the detectives interviewing him in 2012 that he was visiting his sick father. They don't believe him. Rust's Iron Crusader contact wants him to prove himself by joining them in a raid on a Project Stash House, which goes terribly wrong. This episode, when I first saw it, it got me so amped up. I wanted to like rip off my shirt and fight somebody. <laughs> okay. You know, like there's a couple yeah. experiences I've had. Like the first time I saw the Matrix in the theater. Oh, yeah. Uh, like I just you wanted... go out with the Rage Against the Machine song. Come on. What, yeah. What do you I, I wanted to go grab a guy in a suit and, and sunglasses to start punching him. Yeah. You just, you just did. And <laughs> and this there's something very physical and, uh, you know, uh, like Ginger grabbing you by the nuts about this episode. Okay. And I, I thought so too. On multiple watches and hearing like Nick Pizzolatto's commentary, this did feel like an intentional fault line for the series. It really does. And this is where I started to come around. And I think anybody who wasn't on board with the show um, and watched to this point came around a little bit during this episode. The The show yeah. kicks into high gear here. It's not... Yes. It is no longer the same level of philosophizing mm-hmm. and pontificating that we saw in the first three episodes, we get very little of that this one. Yeah. And it kicks more into high gear with the action. You're right. And it also feels na- natural and organic that this is exactly the halfway point of the series at the yeah. end of this episode. Something that uh, Pizzolatto pointed out in his commentary is that he intended this to be the point in the story where the narrative focus and the the point of view shifts from Marty like, you know, we're constantly hmm. seeing rust through the lens of what Marty thinks and all that. That this is yeah, the point yeah. where it flips from that and then it goes and passes, he says, passes the baton to rust. Hmm. And okay. I think that that really works. Like, this is an episode we start to see that rust has so much more life experience and so much more comfort with being danger. And before we've seen kind of rust as being this very controlled yeah, he's got some danger lurking beneath him, but Marty seems like the one that's like a really out of control, you know, maniac that's capable of who oh, knows yeah. what kind of violence. I would say Rust on Coke, Rust on heroin uh-huh. is more in control of himself than Marty <laughs> in any given moment. But Marty is also kind of a poser. Like he rolls tough on with his badge on mall cops and girlfriends uh, and bartenders. Random, yeah, that that he can bully and frighten, and intimidate. And I think it's interesting that Marty is like fully cognizant of that. Like he comes across like a little boy in a lot of these conversations. Where Russ just is casually telling him how things are in the land of sure. undercover cops and and cartels and things. And and that kind of fits with a pattern we've seen of Marty kind of opening up a little bit more to Russ's crazy shit. I know in this episode he says, uh, he kind of identifies with Charlie having someone spouting crazy shit in his ear all day. Um, But that's obviously a joke. And we see a couple of things, a couple indicators. One last episode where he's starting to ask questions Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about things a little more. In this episode, he's reading books 
that are Rust Coles. One thing we learned from the commentary is when he's in the car waiting to hear on the phone, he's reading a book by Nietzsche that mm-hmm. is Rust Cole's copy. Yep. He's got his notes and highlighter and all that stuff in the margins. Yeah, which is interesting. You start to see him changing a little bit it's, and looking to Rust for advice too, right? Yeah, and and seeing that in some ways he's a lot more put together than than Marty is. And he's got a lot yeah. more experience in dealing with really heavy bullshit. That is true. That is true. So I, it it's great. And the way this episode slowly builds the tension... There's nothing to prepares you for like kind of the final 15 mo- 15 minutes of the show. And you can kind of see the character of, of Rust comes alive. Like mm-hmm. he's always been kind of like this deadpan, monotone, doesn't yeah. change his facial expression. But he's really animated, like talking about getting these motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. And from that moment, you know, you get the shit hits the fan box comes out with the AK-47 and the bottle of booze yeah. and the biker gang. And then he lays out the stakes about like, well, it's a bullet in the head. And then you go to the biker bar and you see kind of how dangerous these people are. And then it just becomes one bad thing after another. Like when he's when he's telling Marty an urgent voice, you've got you know, you've got to keep this this phone fully charged and we're going to do this off the books. And are you sure you want to do this? I don't I don't know. I mean, is that is that passion for danger just that he enjoys the adrenaline rush or is it a kind of distraction for him? What, What do you think it is that makes him so attracted to? this scenario it seems like russ spends a lot of his life disassociated yeah so he doesn't have to feel or things too deeply uh and when he throws himself in a situation like that you can't you have to feel things (laughs) and you have to think and you have to react and that gives us this whole you know runaway freight train uh train of thought where it's just like you know you've he's already going there trying to sell drugs to these bad guys then he finds out that they he wants to they need to take him on a mission. Then you find out mm-hmm. they've kidnapped a guy. Then you find out that their plan is to go in with their beards and their biker personas and cop uniforms into this project uh-huh. and knock off a stash house. And, you know, Rust is ours. Like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Have you thought about mm-hmm. this and this? Oh, shit. And, you know, when he's in the the when he's in the house screaming 30 seconds in and out. Yeah. It's so tense. And do not pull that trigger. I mean, yeah, they, they build that incredibly well and that's the thing like you know rust makes it out of this project because yeah. he's still alive in 2012 mm-hmm. but the stakes there are are is ginger going to this is their really big lead that they had to work their ass off for mm-hmm. and kind of fell into their lap through some you know some um uncharacteristically extracurricular uh deep dive police work for marty when he uh-huh. went to the rave and did all that investigation but you know, Reggie Ledoux's, like he said, they're swamp folk. There's no names and addresses. Yeah. There's no, like, birth, like, apparently birth certificates or driver's license. These people are just completely off the grid. So it was a moment of desperation. And, you know, if they didn't get Ginger out of there and get what they want, then the case kind of falls apart. So, yeah, I guess now they have to sweat him, right? The jig is up. Now it's just back to police work on this guy. But they got a couple things they can play with. The fact that Ginger doesn't know that they this isn't an official op sure so he's got serious prison time or whatever um versus rolling over somebody that he doesn't really care about or Mm -hmm. trust so they got that plus yeah russ can just start beating the shit out of him if that fails (laughs) and it'll be interesting to see uh, because i honestly don't remember which way it goes yeah i don't remember how they get from here to the next step yeah i i just felt like it was a very different episode and this is 
you know, this is the line for me too, where I changed my mind on the the show. Hmm. We we talked a little bit about this extended shot, um, kind of just the specifics of it. We haven't talked about the specific shot itself. There's surprisingly little in the commentary about the shot. The mechanics of they it. talk about like why they did it. They don't talk mm-hmm. about how they did it. They no. don't talk anything like that. Uh, I know you did a little bit of digging on that. What, what do you know about this shot? This I extended did extended six so, minute single shot scene. So apparently they did this as nine separate takes. Um, okay. Not, I'm like sorry, not nine separate takes. They did it as nine single takes. It took them nine times to get it right. Okay. And they did a lot of clever things. Like, for example, there's some things you don't even notice. Like when J- Ginger and, and Russ climb the fence, the camera operator does too. And you're like, Jesus Christ, how do you do that in real time without a cut? Apparently, they had some kind of crane with like a, a, a human-powered weighted system that the operator backed into. And then when the time is right, they just kind of lifted him teeter-totter style up and over the fence. <laughs> and then he took off running again. Huh. And so here's yeah. the thing. This is supposedly a six-minute single-shot take. Yeah. But when I was watching it after a few a few times, I started noticing where there are potential places you could cut. Okay. Like when the camera pans up to the sky and sees the blinding light from the helicopter, when yeah. they go over a static wall, when they pass some sheets and there's no actual action happening, a couple of other scenes like that where they could have made cuts, and I just wonder if, if they were a little tricksy on that. And... Nothing I've read from Caster Cruz says that they did that. Apparently, they put those shots in so they could make cuts if they needed to. Like, okay, well, the okay. The, the first part of the action was really good on take one, but they the, someone tripped and 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 the final uh, segment. McConaughey was smoking a bull on on take yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, God damn it, we can't use that. So they they say that the cut you see on on the television was not altered in any way, and they actually got one solid take, and they didn't need to use any of their cut points. Oh, embedded. okay. Uh-huh. Now depi- I don't know if I buy that, but <laughs> I know depending on how cynical you are. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know how many people were involved in this? Like a hundred, hundred fifty. But I guess you only, mean behind in front of the camera and behind? Yeah. Yeah, probably a lot of people. But on on the other hand, I guess no one would really know but the editor and like Nick Pizzolato. Yeah, sure. So if they decided that like, yeah, this is one cut, wink, there's nothing we would ever know different. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I don't think it matters because even if you if even if you say this is six minutes of a minute and a half solid shots, they're so effective and they're so well done. Yeah. And you know, you're at the end of this when you watch it for the first time, your heart is beating like a jackhammer. At least it was like me, and and you just are thinking like, "Wow, I can't believe I saw that." So it, it really was effective. I, I completely agree. Um, I, it's just that the single shot aspect of it was the thing that put pushed it into like this sort of ultra respected episode of television. I mean, I don't know without this single shot if you have the same kind of reaction to it that the internet did when this came out. Because I remember everyone just lost their shit about this shot. Yeah, and I don't know whether... I think that's some of what shaped by the critical reaction because I'm sure your average... And honestly, five years ago, I wouldn't have noticed it. I'd just been like, God damn, that was fucking tense as hell. And I wouldn't have understood why. Yeah, yeah. Because we talked a little bit about this while we were watching it. We were trying to think about the first time we saw and were recognized the fact that, oh my God, this is all being done in one take. And, you know, I mentioned Goodfellas that yeah. I remember thinking this is an unusually engaging film and I'm really sucked into this point of view. And then I later read some reviews just gushing about the single take of 
Ray Liotta's character introducing his girlfriend through the back door of the club and taking her to her table and how that was just very immersive. And I'm like, oh, hmm. yeah. And once you're aware of that thing, you start noticing it more and more. And you also notice yeah. where they're trying to go for that and they're faking it. Yeah, I think my first one was Firefly. Um, the, well, Serenity, oh. the, the movie. Specifically, it starts out with a big, long shot there. Yes. The ship's, but the ship is in danger, and Mal is going around the whole ship warning people mm-hmm. and trying to do what needs to be done to save them. Right. Uh, all, the, all the while, the credits are rolling. Um, they're, they're showing names written by, directed by on the screen, and it's a good, long, four-and-a-half-minute shot. But but the danger element is is the other thing, right? Like, I really felt like there was a lot of danger mm-hmm. mixed into this long cut and true detective. Yeah. Whereas I didn't really feel that urgency in the Firefly shot. Because they're not going to blow up the serenity in five the first five minutes of the movie. But I don't know what the difference is because you know they're not going to kill Matthew McConaughey, right? But I also think that he could be gravely injured to the extent that he couldn't participate on the force anymore. Yeah. Because yeah. the man you see in 95 is so much more wasted away in uh-huh. 2012 and you're wondering why why did that happen and i think that yeah. you know watching a, a character get almost killed is you know or, or <laughs> it, it's still a palpable sense of danger it is like even if you know he can't physically die there's a lot of things that can happen that are not pleasant that you don't want to see your heroic and, characters go through and that alter the course of the story that you're so wrapped up in. Right. Sure. I mean, sure. even the narrative can be a stake within itself. Yeah. Yeah. True. One thing I want to mention is when they were interrogating, was it, is it Charlie Lang? Yeah. That's Dora's ex-husband. Mm-hmm. At the end, he kind of asked for absolution about, you know, do you think any of this is my fault? And he's clearly looking for, no, man, this is an act of a crazy person. Uh, yeah. you, you couldn't have possibly known. But Rusta stares at him and is like, yeah, probably shouldn't have done those cheesecake photos. You probably had something to do with it. Uh-huh. And and Marty's clearly affected by that. And I was wondering why, you know, Russ said he did that because Charlie asked about his end, you know, getting clemency with the parole board before he inquired about his culpability. And to Russ, that is kind of a moral failing, and he's like, fuck him. But I also think that, is it possible that Russ is kind of proselytizing his worldview? And, like, the the complete lack of coddling he gives anyone is not so much an aspect of his personality, but as a way to, to, to enlighten them to his kind of, like, depressing reality? I kind of feel like, yeah, it is. But I think that effort is misguided. I think, oh, of course, most... Spitting most, in someone's face and telling them to buck up isn't exactly the easiest thing. Most attempts at proselytizing are doomed to failure. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's it's less about your approach and more about how open the person was when you first approached them to the proposition sure. you're going to present them. But I think it's interesting in light of his comment about religious fanatics as well, that he's a bit of a religious fanatic himself and that he's you know, wants people to wake up to the, 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 you know, the truth about the universe that he's been mainlining. Yeah, it seems like there, there's more to that than just, I have no sympathy for you, you despicable criminal. You know, this is a pretty heavy episode, an intense episode, but also was one of the more overtly funny ones, too. There are some really funny things like, in there, yeah. Like, they play that bar scene between him and Marty. It's it's a tragedy, but it's played as farce because you just got Russ just steadfastly refusing to be a buddy at all. Yeah. And then Marty 
complaining about like why aren't you overlooking me being a piece of shit and that some of the stuff like that you're to michael jordan being a son of a bitch a son of a bitch because uh-huh. the other thing we found out in the commentary is nick pizzolato intended uh he had this biker jacket made and russ's jacket says uh high speed low, low drag, drag son of a bitch uh-huh. and it was going to pan from that to marty admiring the jacket which he kind of does but it's lost in, in the cuts or whatever it, yeah and when he says he claps him on the back and says you're going to love this jacket i thought that was him finally being a buddy like hey okay i've got my licks in let's let's change the subject let's, let's something that you know we can kind of laugh about or have a good time but I think it's kind of owning it. Like, it is. It you're is. to Michael Jordan being a son of a bitch. Well, look at this jacket I had made. <laughs> I am. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's it's absolutely awesome. Unfortunately, it's not on the screen. No. And that's a little weird to me, given that you have to see, you have to listen to the commentary to understand that last remark that he gives. Well, it recontextualizes it. And that's something I think, I feel like the comment, listen to the commentary fucked you up a bit. Because it, it did. It some did. of the things that I think Nick Pizzolatto were putting out there as Easter eggs, you were seeing that as narrative intent that was unfulfilled. Well, when you have a line like, you're going to love this jacket, mm-hmm. uh, and the jacket calls him a son of a bitch, I think that needs to be on the screen if that's your intent. I, I, and it's not there. I'm agreeing with you, but also by omitting that, it and it could be an intentional change. It did soften the conversation a little bit. Whereas if it's just, I mean, maybe it maybe it softens either way. Okay, but, but I, you know, like the whole like I'm mm. not going to fight with you anymore. I'm going to I'm going to bond with you over something that we'll mutually enjoy or that you'll get a kick out of. Yeah, yeah. Is is kind of softening it. It makes it funnier. And, and the other thing is, I guess they shot a bunch of st- scenes because Marty and Rust are living together in this episode. Yeah. They shot a lot more scenes that are what he called like odd couple bullshit. Yeah. Of yeah. Just like, you know, it, there's a little bit of that survived, like, you know, Marty trying to looking at the pupil mirror and stuff like that. But they cut a lot of that out because it got to be too much. Like there's too much ha ha. I completely agree with that choice. And and I think maybe the jacket was a victim of that too. That like that's a little too maybe. on the nose, and they pulled it back because I I felt like the sh- this this thing has everything. It's got some devastating moments as far as like Marty and his wife's relationship. It's got broad humor. Yeah, and it's got super superb action. It, it feels like a sixty minute mini movie. And I I made that statement like when we were three minutes into the watch, and then I started watching it as if, okay, if I didn't know anything about what came before, I think it's compelling because it's it's mm-hmm. more about Russ's hidden side and you know Marty's reaction to that with the climax of a successful heist that they kidnapped Ginger. Now it's it's the middle of a story, but it kind of does stand alone. Like you could watch this hour of television and say, "Wow, that's a really compelling piece of drama." Okay. I see a few reasons, a few possibilities as to why Russ doesn't help him out here. Okay. Um, first of all, I feel like it might just be payback for Marty telling him to shut the fuck up with all of his philosophy stuff. Oh, right. In previous episodes. I'm trying to tell you about my pain. Uh-huh. And the jab of this guy spouting all this crazy shit in my ear earlier in the episode. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe he's finally had enough and he's like, look, you didn't want to hear it when I was talking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it now. You were being stupid. My daughter got ran over by a car. Yeah. Like, you had no patience for my bull- depressing bullshit. So, yeah, that's, 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 I didn't consider that. That's a really good angle. Or if you take, you know, Russ' propensity to tell it exactly how it is and what we saw of Charlie Lang previously, 
it could be that Rust is trying not to be the Michael Jordan of being a son of a bitch. Maybe if he told Marty exactly what he thought at this moment, that would be a very bad thing for Marty. So he's actually pulling his punches. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the other things on the behind-the-scenes commentary footage is apparently, and it's a great performance by Woody Harrelson, when Marty comes home and he sees his bags are packed and there's that note, I guess Woody requested from Nick that he actually write a real note for him that he could read. Yeah, and that's yeah. the f- first take. And Nick Fiasolato said, I just put the worst shit in there <laughs> I could possibly think of to destroy someone emotionally. And I started thinking, is that... From Maggie's point of view, or is Nick like using really incredibly intimate details of Woody Harrelson's <laughs> personal life to get that reaction out of him? Yeah, yeah. But you're right, because you, you look at how Marty crumbled under hearing unpleasant truths. And I thought that the whole first 20 minutes of this episode is essentially Marty's hypocrisy falling down around his ears. Like he's yeah. been telling this narrative that I do this for the family. I do that. I, I keep everything nice and separate and everything's contained. And now he's hearing your, his wife saying, you're a son of a bitch and you're disgusting. He's mm-hmm. hearing from his ex-girlfriend. You can't, you can't be, have a badge and treat me this way and not show me any respect. He's hearing from his partner. You're stupid. You fucked up. He calls his father-in-law and his father-in-law says, you're no good son of a bitch. And I've always hated you. And now I've got my proof. Like, it's just a relentless attack. So you're right. Maybe Rust is being as kind as he can possibly be. Okay. You know, and it kind of mirrors Marty's conversation with uh, the court recorder. uh, Lisa, I think is her name. Yeah. Where she's like, you know you got to be, you have to treat me with respect and blah. He's like, look, I'm being as nice and respectful as I'm ever going to be. Yeah. That kind of could mirror how Rust is treating his partner. Uh, So third possible reason that he doesn't help out Marty here. Okay. Maybe he doesn't feel qualified to talk about this stuff after the experiences that he's had in his life, his failed marriage, his trauma with his child. How can he talk about family? It's kind of like if you, if you're, if you're a, a poor, if you, have no money and you have a friend that's rich and he talks about how he his 401k lost 10% of its value and he's going to have to <laughs> you know they're going to have they're going to have to move out of their mansion or they're going to have to sell their summer home in Florida it's like yeah. fuck you Pat like go down to one car that is something he's entitled to cry about that is a personal loss he's it, and it, just sure. because you've got it worse does not make his distress any less real but you don't want to hear about you're it. the wrong person to talk to about it yeah yeah i yeah. like that that's a good, uh, i wonder if that's part of it too that's a good take too uh i want to talk briefly about rust drinking again you know we've seen him robo tripping we've yep. seen him show up extremely drunk and he apparently had stopped drinking after that night at marty's house where he was at dinner and showed up really drunk he conspicuously when they're on that date night later on at the Longhouse or Long Longhorn or whatever, he when when the waitress tried to put some beer in his cup or maybe it's Marty, he covered it. Was, it. Yeah, like nah, I'm 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 off of that now. Um, so I thought him going to his shit hits to fan box for a bottle of liquor was yeah. intentionally showing him like starting to psych himself up to get into this character. Yeah, and it almost felt like um, that the the action itself, getting back into this high intensity drug operation whatever right right right. uh is is the drug he's looking for that adrenaline he's looking for that danger that's also part that's wrapped up in his drinking and his abuse of drugs and medicines no and him him falling off the wagon was partly theater like oh it's kind of in the same way like i'm shooting up ink and cayenne pepper into my arm to look like i've been doing heroin 
it's partly to get like in character, but it's also yeah, it's it's part of this whole greater trip that he's on, which is the adrenaline junkie kind of thing. Who will cast the first stone? Who will send me back home? Sin is eating up my bones. I'm walking with the devil. This world is so evil. Marty's infidelity is exposed and Maggie kicks him out. He looks to his new roommate, Rust, for commiseration, but is shut down by the Michael Jordan of being a son of a bitch. I thought it was really interesting how Maggie's first instinct was to throw Rust's perceived failure as a father into his face when he went there to kind of smooth things over between her and Ah, and Marty. And she went to the... You guys are all the same. You just rationalize your behavior. I bet you were an all-star husband. And he's like, all right, we're done. That's a, shitty, that's a shitty thing to say, the final thing she said. But she is also right, isn't she? I, I mean, he is rationalizing away Marty's cheating. I don't as think pain so. And, and she's, he's trying to get her to look at it from Marty's angle. I get that. There's so many brilliant ways to look at this scene. Okay. Uh, for, and I, I love the shot composition where... They're 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 filming this from outside the window and, you know, Rust like looks at her, gets up, walks away and he kind of blurs out and you're just looking at Maggie's face contemplating him. And then when he gets outside and their faces like his blurred face in the window passes hers, it snaps focus to him. And then you watch him get into his car and drive away. And I, I thought that. So, so this ties into whether you think that Rust is lying to Marty when Marty says, how did she seem? What's your honest read? And he goes, yeah. I could see you guys getting back. I think she's softening. I can see she didn't use the D word. Uh, I think you guys could get back together in a couple of months. When I first saw that, I'm like, man, is he is this the, is this a lie that he is just doing to manipulate his partner? Kind That's of like a confession. Question. Yeah. On the other hand, if you read one way to read his conversation with Maggie is he's this, this thought about human weakness. Mm-hmm. And how you sometimes do things because you're an emotional pain that you wouldn't do in an otherwise sane state of mind. Her going with a really vicious jab at Rust, who lost his wife because their daughter died, mm-hmm. and they mutually couldn't deal <laughs> with that fact, and they blamed each other for surviving. Low blow. With, with Marty chasing ass, it was a low blow and something that she wouldn't do in her normal frame of mind without undergoing all the pain and suffering that she's been inflicted on by Marty and she's just lashing out. He was drawing, I think I'm not sure intentional because the guy is really smart and he's almost like a psych diabolical psychological (laughs) genius here. Yeah. But I wonder if that was an intentional thing. Like he was going to somehow in his detached way, provoke Maggie into thinking that, Oh, well maybe human weakness is universal. It manifests in different ways, some more noble than others, but, you know, Marty's just a man. Yeah, I like that. And it, it, it also, you can kind of read that on her face as he walks away. She realizes that, yeah, that was a low blow. He didn't deserve that. Um, and I think she kind of gets the point of what he's doing there. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I, I get it. There, I think- there are many ways to read that, like you said. I mean, the other one could be Rust is literally coming at this from the angle of, give Marty a break because he's human and he's weak and he doesn't mean to to invoke this reaction from her, but that's what he gets. And also... And he's like, you know, anything I say here is going to just make this worse, so I'm leaving. Sure. 
Yeah, and also like you're not really angry at me, you're angry at Marty. Yeah. And I'm not going to I'm not going to be your conduit to lash out. Just Another, like he won't be Marty's friend, right? Yeah. To to seek some sort of consolation for what he's done. Uh, another thing I think is that, you know, he does seem to care a lot about children. Yeah. Like, you know, you even see in the stash house raid, it was a pretty rough, unconventional approach, pointing a gun at a kid's face and saying, don't move. But his first instinct was to try to protect this young person from from seeing anything or catching a bullet, like get in his bathtub and stay safe before I do anything else. That's the first thing I'm going to do is sweep and check for quote unquote innocent people. Yeah. Um, and and his focus on the kids like, you know, this is really why men and women get together. It's the whole biological and evolutionary imperative. So uh-huh. are you really going to throw that away? Have you really thought about all the angles? And, you know, it's like, you know, she's got a point. He is rationalizing all this stuff, but that's what people do. Yeah. And absolutely. I don't, the other thing is the other angle you could take is he didn't really want to be there, but this is like a quid pro quo. Like Marty's like, well, if you want me to get my head back in the game, then you got to help me try to, you know, get a little movement on this side. So, so Marty could quit fucking worrying about it and focus because what they're about to do is super dangerous. Yeah. And going back to what you said about rationalization and maybe Maggie understanding that, I wonder if Marty understands that. Because later on, we see Marty go to the hospital, and he's like, I meant everything I said the other night, um, which we know is, you know, I'm fucked up, I got a problem, um, I'm recognizing that, uh, I I need to move past it. But Maggie doesn't like to hear that, obviously. But What was her line? Just because your betrayal was interrupted doesn't mean this is over. Something like that, yeah. That's pretty clutch. You got caught. Yes, but at the same time, we did see what I believe was a genuine breakdown from Marty the previous episode. It was something. Um, a- acknowledging that he's fucked up. Okay. You know, acknowledging his weakness. Sure, sure. And and I think he's coming to Maggie hoping that by re-acknowledging that, she'll have some sympathy for him. Yeah, probably uh, not. And I, yeah, it doesn't seem like she does in that scene, certainly. No, and I'm, like I said, I'm in, I'm entirely on her side, and I think that... <laughs> it's hard not to be, right? Yeah, Marty uh, You'd is, have to be a real son of a bitch. It's not just that what he's doing, it's the total hypocrisy of what he's doing. Yeah. In, in contrast to what he's telling the detectives, and, 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 you know, it's like you, as a viewer, I think, get a little bit of the negative, like, you lying son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. Like, just a taste of what the character of Maggie would feel. That's the thing. I think they've done a great job of setting up Marty and her backstory without actually giving us any backstory. Yeah. Right? They've given us the present of of their relationship and shown us that Marty is kind of always like this. He he is, in throughout his entire life, his mm-hmm. his interviews with the, the police, the detectives in yeah. 2012, yeah. even to this day, he is not acknowledging exactly what he does he he is very hip, hypocritical sure in almost every aspect of his life and that lends a lot of insight into their history you know it, i i noticed the show took a lot of shit for being like yet another dark look into male misogyny and the male dominated thing and the women don't matter and all sure. that but I found Maggie from the jump a hell of a lot more relatable and oh yeah and you know than like a Skylar White and we talked about that in the first season retrospective like I think Vince Gilligan made a lot of decisions to make Skylar White unlikable in comparison to uh, Walt that we feel sympathy for definitely now I don't want to say I don't feel any sympathy for Marty because he's clearly got a lot going on under the hood but. 
I feel like this is a, this is an interesting way to kind of turn that in its head because you had the male character being an asshole, but we were never. I don't feel like the average viewer felt the need to take his side against Maggie. I, I it was pretty self evident yeah. that he was just being. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, well, I'm doing this separation for my family. You saw the hypocrisy and selfishness of that laid bare. Now, it could be that this is an eight-episode miniseries, and that stuff has to develop a lot quicker. That that yeah, yeah. by the time you get to the episode two of Marty, that's equivalent of like mid-season two Walt, which the worm had already started turning a lot of viewers' minds. And yeah, but it's I, also that you know the things that Walt is doing in Breaking Bad are not directly, at least at that point, directly affecting Skyler in the way that the things Marty does are, you know, that there's much more of a direct connection between his deeds and Maggie, yeah. uh, Maggie's well-being. Yeah. I, nothing in the previous episodes gave me cause to think that Lisa is your typical, you know, she, she's like, as, as Russ would call her crazy pussy. Okay. She seemed pretty rational and, you know, making kind of like rational demands, but they recontextualize yeah. all this as if she was playing a game the entire time. Like, I want this man to divorce his wife and leave his family. I'm following him to this bar to flaunt this boyfriend, to know that he's going to be jealous. And then uh, instead of breaking things off with me entirely, I wanted him to like, sh I just wanted him to impress how serious this is. I have other options and that hmm. he needs to lock me down or whatever. And so I'm thinking, like, since we saw all that stuff from Marty's perspective, were we just missing the signs that she was a lot more unstable or needy or whatever that, that than she was? Maybe so, because it it I view his reaction to what to what he did as you know it's it's a little bit of like water under the bridge sort of thing. Like, uh, uh I, I don't want to talk about it because yeah, I was fucking crazy at that moment. But it's also kind of what she would want if she actually wanted out of this relationship, right? Yeah. No, I so mean... So there must be more to it in her head. Yeah, I agree. So that's what I'm th saying is that... Because I don't think that necessarily dropping the dime on his wife was an unconscionable thing to do. No, Like, you I know, Marty's so like, either. oh, how could you blew up my family? Well, fuck you, dude. Yeah. You just came to her house, broke in, beat up a dude in her house, flashing your badge, like... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, you can't treat people... The, with impunity and expect them to not be able to fight back. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, yeah. she can't whip a badge out and pistol whip your wife, <laughs> but she can call her up or show up at her house and embarrass the shit out of you, yep. rub your nose in what you did. Sure. So that was, it kind of rang a little false to me, and I and I, I wasn't sure if this is suggesting that maybe we're not going to be outright lied to as far as what it actually happens narratively, but some of the emotional nuance, we might get a different, okay, you know, kind of the same way, like finding out the, the jacket had son of a bitch on it slightly recontextualizes that exchange, like yeah. finding out that Lisa was quote unquote crazy, slightly recontextualizes everything I saw before. Yeah. There's some other recontextualization happening throughout the series. I mean, finding out that Cole had a daughter that he lost, Mm -hmm. um, gives you a lot of insight into him finding out that he also had a father who maybe he didn't get along with. That was interesting. Uh, Survivalist with crazy ideas. Like, yeah, some of the stuff Russ says makes him seem very shady and suspicious. Yeah. It, it makes you start to question, you know, how much do I actually know about this guy yeah. and his motivations and stuff? Before we go off on the other thing about Lisa is like, 
I actually thought it was more interesting that she was just a, a young girl who was fucking around with Marty and then decided to just run its course and moving on as yeah. a mature decision to make. Uh-huh. Then she secretly wanted him to break up with his wife. I think that's a much less interesting decision for everything. Does that feel a little too tropey to you? Yeah. Is that why? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to the extent that the show is open to accusations of, oh, this is just another male-dominated misogynist fantasy, that was a step in that direction, a big step in that direction. Yeah, it like, feels like if she were in control of the relationship, like she's I, in control. Like right? I would have, she comes flying out the courthouse is like, I demand an apology or I'm going to the cops and uh-huh. Marty big times or then she does that. That's better than alluding to the fact that, well, she's just crazy and she's trying to trap you and destroy your family and it's your fault for not seeing crazy pussy. That, yeah. that I didn't like that so much. talked a lot about the commentary track and there's yeah. some stuff that doesn't really fit into the discussion of the episode it's more thematically interesting mm-hmm. uh, that i had takeaways and i just wanted to see if any of this stuff floats your boat he recounted a story about the cd strip club and you know it's, it's hard to call anything cd after you saw the trailer park bunny ranch but the cd right. kind of you know small rural town strip club that nick pizzolato himself played the bartender of yeah uh Apparently, this strip club in real life is literally across the street from a little girl's dance academy. Oh, and okay. the, the sign on the sign on the 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 on the dance academy is a little girl with like you know in a ballerina pose with a tutu, a silhouette. Yeah, and then across the street, the sign on the other side of the street is a girl dancing on a pole. A uh-huh. silhouette of her. And they had a shot of that that they were going through and editing is like, oh, that's just too fucking on the nose. But he's yeah, like, you know, yeah. a lot of people have accused his show and other shows of being kind of on the nose. But he goes, you know, this area has some fucked up juxtapositions. Yeah, I I think that's kind of amazing in the the really wrong sort of way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if you, if he had had that in the shot, I imagine people would have been like, Oh my God. Yeah. Right. But yet that's, they actually had excluded a shot that they did not doctor because it would, it would, <laughs> it would make the fictional world feel less real. Huh? And yeah. That's surprising. The other thing is like, when I first thought it was a commentary between Nick Pizzolatto and T-Bone Burnett, I'm like, what the fuck? I don't really care. I mean, I care about what Nick Pizzolatto, but the musical selection, like that's a mm. five minute, you know, special feature at best. And I was really surprised by how insightful their commentary was. And yeah. this kind of builds into like, I guess there was this vocal part of the internet that was really complaining about some of the musical choices, like the fact that they put a, a, a classic KRS-One track to the strip club. And they're both kind of like, you know, what the fuck? It's an anachronism, right? No, I mean, because it's, you know, I guess at the time it had been like a 10-year-old song. Oh, it is? Okay. But they're mm-hmm. like, no, in, in rural Louisiana. And I'm like, I don't know. It felt right. Like, what do you expect to hear in a small-town strip club? Bluegrass? <laughs> like <laughs> little little jazz? What, yeah. what do you want out of Louisiana strip club? <laughs> yeah, some Dixieland? The fuck? And and yeah. they're, they, there's this point that they made about fictional truth versus documentary truth that that people were complaining about some of the musical choices they made and some of the other uh you know someone like made a comment on the internet about there's a bottle of sriracha 
on the roadside fish fry stand that they visited two episodes and like, oh, okay. is that Sir- was Sriracha even around in 95? Well, yes, it actually was. Would have been in some roadside fish fry in Louisiana. Who knows? Yeah. But, I, you know, I know we sometimes are guilty of that, like nitpicking the show's universe. But that kind of level must be really f- frustrating as a creative person. That, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Like, okay, so you personally have gone to every bar strip club in Louisiana in 1995 and verified that no one would be playing conscious style rap. Yeah. With a good beat to it. Really? That's what you're saying? That's bringing you out of the scene? What the fuck? <laughs> it's got to be also extra infuriating when you're trying to build a thematic feel. Yeah. You know, when you're trying to evoke an emotion from someone. Who cares really that there's an anachronism? Like I or or even that there's an inconsistency with with the location or whatever. I feel like if they were to throw like an iPhone into 1995, that might feel sure. wrong because it's so obviously right. doesn't belong there. Right. And it doesn't do anything to set the mood. Exactly, yeah. But I can't I mean, unless you're like, is this quantum leap? What's going on <laughs> yeah. here? But but it's like, yeah, when you're trying to evoke an emotion from someone uh-huh. with the surroundings and the environment and you can't use anything that's outside of what everyone mm-hmm. would consider to be normal for that environment, that's got to be super infuriating. I agree. I agree. He also made some comment about the flaw. And this is, I think, during the scene where Russ walks out on Maggie. He says that the flaw that both men possess is the they're incapable of admitting to the possibility of grace. Now, hmm. I don't know if he meant because he didn't elaborate. I don't know if he meant grace in like the Christian sense of the word, like forgiveness, or he meant grace as in there's other approaches to something other than bullheaded, smash you with the toolbox, emotional high stakes conflict. Hmm. Okay. You know, rust and and i, I kind of think it's a little bit of a blend because and i guess it depends on your read of that scene too right yeah like rust seems like everyone has to be accountable for their actions and yeah. marty wants to have complete <laughs> lack of accountability but he doesn't want people to be angry at him for that lack of accountability yeah and they're both two sides of the same kind of fucked up coin <laughs> Que demain je danse encore Que je n'ai plus peur battre ton tambour You ready to smell the psychosphere? Oh yeah. Uh, once again, as a reminder, if this is the first time you're joining us, in the middle of the season for some crazy reason, this is stuff that we mine from the internet using a... a, a, a very specific search. We weed out anything that might have occurred after this episode. And it's just if you were if you were following this from the start, these are some of the things you might have missed or some of the interesting possibilities that are raised in the series. Uh, and again, this is starting to become a very visual type of thing. And I will post all these in the show notes as I usually do. Uh, but uh, first thing I want to draw your attention to is that someone had this theory about by this point in time, we've heard Carcosa and the Yellow King and so on and so forth, mentioned numerous times. And we've seen them quoted in diaries and whatnot. These are actual real-life story. And people are saying, you know, we've talked about this, about maybe something Lovecraftian happened. And people are using this as evidence. The fact that this is a real-life story, 
And yet neither Rust nor Martin or Marty ever says, hey, you know what? We did some research and it turns out this is all referenced in this fictional work that came out 100 years ago. Hmm. Okay. That's the hallmark, you know, kind of like a zombie film rarely uses the word zombie. (laughs) Or or in in a vampire film, you very rarely reference Bram Stoker's Dracula as the source material unless it's some kind of like meta commentary like you know if they're poking fun at it or it's like a super aware fourth wall breaking type of affair so the fact that they are pretending as if these works don't exist in their world if we take that as a theory Hmm. is this evidence that we are dealing with the lovecraftian plot because essentially every lovecraftian story is a man investigates crazy shit doubts his sanity loses his sanity in 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 investigating uh, an, some kind of occult happenings or ritual, okay. Uh, that that doesn't mean at the end that there's some kind of thousand eyed goat monster that's going to come out of the sky and devour. <laughs> but that kind of Lovecrafting feel is is this a hint that since we're not we're we're acting like that fiction doesn't exist even and and we're we're heavily pulling from it is that kind of evidence that that we're in for that kind of ride. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's evidence where you want to find evidence. I, I think that Rust would say, you know, the lack of evidence can't be evidence. Mm. You know, <laughs> the, the fact that they're not doing something can't prove that they're doing something. So it's 95. It's not as hard, you know, like in 2014, 2000, when this came out, 2015, you can just Google King in Yellow. Boom. Sure. There's the book on Amazon. There's the Wikipedia summary. Here's the artwork inspired. Here's the autobiography of the author. It's much easier to make connections. Um, However, Rust is an extremely well-read individual, literary individual. If anybody could make those connections. Yeah, you might you might think a box man like him, you'd think at some point would say, hey, Carcosa, let me let me run that through the system, whatever that system is. Let me get a cart catalog. And look up the king, you know, I don't know, man, if, if Nietzsche didn't say it, then I don't know that Russ knows it. <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting that the title of this episode, Who Goes There, is a reference to Thomas Ligotti's book. I guess it's one of the chapter subtitles, uh, his book, uh, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, hmm. that okay. um, Lotto cribbed a lot of the information from, like the whole the human race should go hand in hand in extinction as brothers and sisters. That whole speech is lifted okay. almost word for word from the book. Is it a, a work of fiction? Is it a philosophical It's a philosophical text? book that I'm okay. now that I've, I actually read a sample chapter in Amazon and prep for this episode and I'm with child to read this thing. Ah, okay. um, but I thought it was interesting. And yet here's where like, I know there's a big controversy about Nick Pizzolatto and whether he's a plagiarist and hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, because he pulled a lot of stuff from these works without attribution. I like, think one what... defense of that is it's actually Rust doing that, and it would kind of hurt the flow of the dialogue to be as you know. I, and I know that Rust does credit like Nishi, and they they make mention of this later on in the series and even earlier in the series. But I don't think you have to put a fucking you know attribution for everything that you lift from someone. However. The one thing, and this is the first time I've ever thought this way, and doing research about that, it turns out that in all the behind-the-scenes information, even though this is an obvious, seemingly reference to the book, Pizzolatto claims that this is a reference to the dual nature of Marty and Rust. And the fact that these are masks that are coming, like, who goes there? Like, or seeing Rust for the first time. I think that's an element of it. 
but it did feel kind of disingenuous to not credit the source and the behind the scenes material. So he claims no connection to he didn't, Tom Ligotti stuff. He didn't claim it. And it's just as likely that in the background information that maybe he did attribute that. And the editors that work for the marketing team found that less interesting than the meta analysis. So they cut that as a part of a, a larger conversation. And yeah. saying that it, that was a perfect time for him to give credit where credit's due. And he didn't. So it makes me think that maybe he was young and stupid enough to think that he could lift a lot of this and not give any credit to the, to the people until people started saying, hey, you plagiarized from this. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, these were inspirations for me. So wh- what do you mean when you say plagiarized? I mean, are there are there lines I, in? I guess there's like a, like paragraphs of dialogue that is put into rust mouth that comes right from this book, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Interesting. Okay. And his overall worldview and philosophy is espoused in this book, heavily inspired. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm not too cranky about it. It's just a, again, I never felt this way at all until I started reading into this, this, this episode title. And I watched interviews with him. They're contemporary. Cause again, I'm just watching stuff that was available at the time. Yeah. And not once did I see him give credit to Legati. Not That's smoking gun. It's just, yeah. you know, recon- like we talked about, recontextualize how I feel about that particular debate. Again, I think it's... Yeah, I would think if you if you were writing something like this yeah. and you wanted to avoid that problem, yeah. um, you wanted to kind of make this your own work, you would yeah. have a rewording of those paragraphs. You wouldn't sure. lift them verbatim. And it's not like whole chapters of the book or anything like that. I still, still think it's it's fine... Um, and I, again, like if you, okay, you read Thomas Ligotti's book, build a character around it and then populate a universe where it makes sense for him to exist and feels organic and then write a compelling mystery that's built on top of that. That's a shitload of transformative creative work. So everyone oh, yeah. is just saying that I he no needs to be publicly fla- uh, shamed because he's a plagiarist. Fuck off. No, I don't buy that at all. <laughs> However... I uh, think that was one creative misstep he 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 made that maybe in in the promotional stuff he could have given a little bit more credit. Okay. Anyway, I talked about the the meta context of the HP Lovecraft stuff. Did did you know that Marty was uh sporting antlers in a previous episode? Oh, he is. I'd like to direct your attention to our bald move monitor here. Okay. Uh when he throws his hands up and and kind of like surrender or disgust when he's having a conversation with his wife in their bedroom he's kind of making the bullwinkle sign which does look a lot like antlers and the guy's name is heart which is an archaic word for a stag deer oh wow i didn't know that h-a-r-t i Uh, thought to be clear this is last episode yes 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 this is from the last episode and a lot of this stuff is you know it, it took more than a week for people to 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 make the connection yeah um but I thought that was interesting if you're trying to follow the thread of, you know, the whole true detective. There's only one. One guy's the bad guy. One guy's under suspicion. <laughs> He's wearing Masonic rings, blah, blah, blah. This is more fuel to that fire. Sure. Sure. I, I like the imagery, even though I'm not sure exactly what it's saying. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like this, you know, at this point, you're not sure. It, a lot of this stuff might, in retrospect, seem like it's overblown or even in the time there's like a lot of people in the thread like whoa 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 let's not go in full breaking bad like in meta analysis but that's the kind of fun part of it i i agree yeah this is all but fuel for the fire now that could be even i have my limits yeah yeah, yeah i have I my it. limits when you when you say like 
oh, this freeze frame means this. I mean, you can get shots of Captain Picard sure. looking like he has buck teeth if you take the right freeze frame, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, there are plenty of opportunities uh, with 30 frames per second in an hour-long show. I would say when it comes to meta-analysis, you're Jack and I'm Locke. Okay, I'm a little you, more skeptical. You're the man of reason, I'm the man of faith. <laughs> yes, I would I would say, sure. Because I love all this sure. shit. Like, I'm on Reddit, like, on a show that I love, I'm on Reddit every day looking at the fresh heaping of bullshit and eating it up, steaming. Yeah, whereas I, I like to throw some cold water on that bullshit. All right, throw some cold water on this. Draw your attention again from last episode, a uh, a picture of, Mar- of, of the Martin Hart house. There's various drawings of his girl drawings. Uh, there's my Hoosier hospitality coming out. The various drawings on the wall. One of them is a conspicuous purple spiral design around a kind of a sun. And maybe there's even a hint of a stick figure pattern yeah, in the foreground. Like the, the devil nets. With the other disturbing shit we've seen with his daughter. Yeah. Is, is this again tying that without Martin being aware of it? Or maybe he is with his fucking hand horns uh, and his his Marty a part of this rings. and he's maybe, doing some horrible stuff with his daughter What's either this has crept in his home without him knowing it or maybe he's part of it i don't know i'm just smelling yeah, the psychosphere wh- what man. does this say like it's getting more and more disturbing with his daughters yeah what could this say about you go from the stage to barbie sex scene which maybe that's her working out her daddy you know doing sure bad, he, she owes over but it is creepy especially combined with the it's horse creepy. cold photo and, and then and but then keeping on to his daughter because that was marie fontenot right or that was dora lang yeah i'm just saying like the, the yeah, five yeah. men one girl but then her drawing sort of god getting and drawing her drawing pictures of people having sex and the, the drawings looked like yeah. they had like maybe bizarre masks on this is starting to get some disturbing shit there's i agree potentially fire to this smoke has she been approached by this spiral cult don't know uh why is she drawing this how does she even have that image in her head i mean one of the things we found out the bombshell is uh, charlie lang said that there is an existence of a cult of rich powerful men pre- preying on young little yeah. girls and and women and Reggie Ledoux has the spiral tattoo on his back. Indeed. Uh, there's also a really cool project that someone took. Um, speaking of projects, the act that this, the thing that Russ was rampaging through at the end was an actual project in in Louisiana, and you can actually there's someone has taken the time to make all the different pins on Google Maps of the project, so you can actually see the path <laughs> he took That's on cool. Google Earth. Yeah. And I'm going to share that link, too, because it's kind of fun just to look at and ground it to where it is in relation to Louisiana and all that stuff. Um, also, someone wondered if it, we've already met Reggie Ledoux. I mean, clearly, we've seen him wearing a gas mask. Yeah. But check out this picture of the lawnmower man, lawnmower riding man. All right. Last episode. Look at the mugshot of, Char- of Reggie Ledoux. Yeah, they both kind of have similar faces. They've got scraggly beards. Uh, lidded eyes, yeah, crazy eyes, kind of a heavy brow, lots of similarities huh. there. I remember that's another thing that really made me sit up and take notice when I'm watching. Here's the other thing in that photo: six foot seven, two hundred twenty-five pounds. Bullshit. Does that, does that does that lawnmower man look six foot seven, two twenty-five to you? Well, does Reggie Ledoux look six foot seven, two twenty-five? <laughs> like he would be a human skeleton. Six foot seven, two hundred twenty-five pounds. Get the fuck out of here. He would be thin, certainly. I, 
I don't think that guy, if the guy on the mower is six foot seven, he looks more like 300 pounds. Yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, a six foot seven, 300 pound dude is still kind of trim. Like, I don't know. Uh, I'm muscle versus fat, yada, yada, yada. I'm biased. I'm six foot two, 250 pounds. I look, uh, you know, and, and I feel like Ledoux and I kind of have a similar. No, nah, I'm more I'm more in common with the lawnmower man. All right. Which if lawnmower man and Ledoux is the same person, then there you go. There you go. I, they do look similar. I think people I constantly, say. constantly underestimate people's weight. Well, that's why there's there are carnivals and uh, attractions dedicated specifically to that. Sure, sure. And and we we heap praise upon the people who can accurately predict your weight. <laughs> Boy, do we ever. Remember that one time we did that as a contest on The Walking Dead and a talent scout for like a college football team were able to just with video that we posted nail us yeah. down yeah. to like an inch and five pounds. It was incredible. He is skilled. Like yes. You have to call that a yes, skill. Yes, he looks at a lot of beef and, and he's, he's the butcher. <laughs> to, Check to, out this beef. Weighing up the lamb. All right, I know you didn't like the whole yellow sign theory and, and i didn't think it was a spiral I, I think that's true but you also could say that there's artistic license because uh even though i some of this stuff might be in the public domain i know that you know uh fantasy flight and other games have actually developed stuff with these markings and maybe they changed it to allude to that fact but you know they're trying not to get sued or whatever Notice that I've got uh, in the rave scene in the background, you have the upper part of what looks like a the, the yellow sign. Now, that's the exact same way of saying you've got the upper part of a question mark. Sure. Because the entire half top half of the yellow sign, the sign of the elder gods or whatever, is literally yeah. a yellow question mark. It is. But if you're smelling a psychosphere. Mm. That's that's the very tendril of Cthulhu I, itself. Yeah, I think you got to take a pretty deep sniff. <laughs> to say that Cthulhu is in that tent or something, but uh, yeah, it does. It does look a lot like the top portion of that sign. Uh, another thing is there is some growing speculation. We talked about his daughter. Uh, she's obviously ex- ex- exhibits some kind of sexual trauma in 1995. Yeah, that it could be that she is a copycat killer, or is ki- is is actually the killer of the 2012 case. Uh. Or she is potentially a victim that we're going to find out. Who are you? Are you hypothesizing that Marty's daughter is a killer? Not in '95 in 2012. She's been abused oh, by this cult, oh, and she gets okay. out, and she's part of it. Or that's interesting. The other thing is potentially is she? You know, we don't know where she's at. We know Marty's divorced because he's not wearing his wedding ring. Yeah, she could potentially be. Uh, you know, the the latest victim, and there's going to be a ticking time bomb scenario. Or she could That's be the actual real. Yeah. That would also explain why there is so many ties to Marty and th- the things that make him look guilty or his family kind of mixed up in this because it actually is. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, also that we kind of got the impression that Marty's father-in-law is a well-to-do, wealthy, upper crust looking down, which would be consistent with the profile of a rich, powerful person that would be part of this cult. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I mean, that could certainly be where the daughter's getting these ideas, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, of course he would want his his son-in-law, who's a police officer, uh, of course he would always find him an asshole and be trying to d- drive a wedge between his daughter and him because he doesn't yeah. want any, he doesn't want the heat that close. Yeah, I like that. 
Another one, Rust's undercover nickname was Crash. His daughter was killed in a car accident. Oh, my God. That's a whole... These people are heartless. Well, These biker did. gangs are fucking heartless if they're using his nickname as Crash. It's worse. It's the police. That's That was his official, like, uh, cover on that the was? police reports. That's apparently, like, you, when they show, like, okay. redacted reports, you can actually make out the word Crash in the police reports. That's even worse. Uh, well, it could be that he chose it intentionally. Or it could be that, you know, because it does seem like he was their whipping boy. Like, Marty was shocked that he was undercover for more than 11 months. He was undercover for four years, and we know that that was a deliberate... Like, fuck you, because he did whatever they told him to do. Because number one, yeah. he didn't care if he lived or died. Number two, he fucked up and killed a dude that he shouldn't have. And this is kind of mm-hmm. like punishment. So I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure what it means. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, let's play some name game. Marty Hart. English word for deer or stag, which could potentially point to him being the killer. He had the the, the hand horns. The yeah. show has painted him as kind of a bit of a sociopath who can't deal with his... Uh, family problems because he's missing some kind of restraint or control. Also, he stresses the fact that he's a family man and that a man, a family gives a man boundaries, that a man without a family after a certain age is dangerous. And yet we know in 2012 he's divorced. I mean, there's also, he has relationships with young women as well, right? Yep. I mean, do they all have to be prostitutes or could Lisa be in danger? That's 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 a good point. Uh, name game for Reginald Ledoux. Reginald is a translation. It, it contains like uh, regal. Um, okay. It's it, it tied to a king, you know, the word for ki- uh, king, like a re- you know, your Reginald name is like your actual king name. Because hmm. um, I guess that's something they do. I, I'm not aware of this, but I don't think Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth is a real birth name. I think it's something else, but essentially okay. kind of like popes. Yeah. They take a pope papal name. Mm-hmm. Same thing with here. Um, the Yellow King's been mentioned multiple times throughout the show, but we haven't really gotten into the deep dive in there. Um, we know that this guy's tied to a cult with devil worship. Uh, Dora Lang told her husband that she had met a Yellow King, and we know that after him, she, he hooked up. She hooked up with Reggie Ledoux. Reginald, the Yellow, is he the Yellow King? That was interesting. Could be. Same mm-hmm. comment mentioned Reverend Tuttle. So. Tuttle, I guess, is an archaic form of the word tutelage, which now tutelage Hmm. means like a more experienced person having guardianship or some kind of instructional role in a less experienced person's lives. Yeah. But originally it referred to the tribute that a person would pay towards a king or a ruler. And they're saying that both of those words work in this, that he could be the tutor for this Reginald character. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's the top rich man directing it. He's the boss. Um, or yeah, that's that's it. That could that, be a thematic thing. I mean, that he's he, tootle, and also that he's a king or ruler that these other people are paying tribute to, and that it's not Reggie okay. Ledoux as the Yellow King; it's this Reverend Tuttle character. Somehow, I feel there's more evidence for Marty being the King in Yellow at this point yeah. than that Tuttle guy because we just haven't seen him much. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, it could just be that he is a literal, uh leader figurehead and has schools that he operates and like I thought, it could be a thematic thing i thought there. the tuttle thing was a, re- a reach but the heart thing feels kind of right on that there is an intentional allusion to to that and with the horns and all that stuff i don't know if it means he's a villain but i think it's going to be significant later on mm-hmm. reginald makes sense and even like you know you got heart 
versus coal heart like a human beating heart coal versus the hard lump of stone do people say like you know you've got the heart, a heart of stone uh-huh. yeah there is enough playing with these this this name game by Pizzolatto himself that I kind of want to give credence to these these illusions okay well you're free to do that well that's what happens when you sniff the psychosphere Bald Move depends on your support to create our independent podcast. Find out how you can help out and get lots of great perks such as ad-free podcasts, live video feeds, and other exclusive bonus content at club.baldmove.com. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. 